Hey everyone, Fraser here. Time for another interview with me. Uh, this time it was an interview I did with a podcast called The Debrief. And we did a wide ranging conversation about uh, humanity's future in space and the exploration of Mars, you know, all the usual topics. I apologize for the audio quality on my side. It was live streamed on YouTube and maybe it was picking up the wrong microphone on my side, not the good microphone, but maybe one of the bad microphones that are all around me all the time. So uh, I apologize in advance. Uh, but I hope the you enjoy the actual interview itself. It was a lot of fun to do. Okay, here's the interview. And we are live. Welcome to the official debrief 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 podcast. Uh, I'm blown away by my guest today. I've got Fraser Kane here with me. He's the co-host of Astronomy Cast, as well as the publisher of Universe Today, a space and astronomy site that has reached over 36 million people uh, last year. Fraser, how the heck are you, brother? Good, good. Thanks for thanks for having me on your live show. This is great. The, Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, for the, <laughs> for the very first time. Hello, stranger. Yeah, so I have to be a little bit honest. Um, Fraser is coming back and joining me again for the uh, for the second time, actually, because I lost our original interview, and he's agreed to come do this thing live. So I, I appreciate that, Fraser. Yeah, I I hope we can stick to the original back and forth uh, that we did during our previous interview. I think anything else would be a disservice to the audience because uh, they will they then otherwise that conversation would just be lost in time. I, I completely agree, and uh, and we will, will not let that happen. So let's dig right. in here. Let's talk about – so you are a space journalist. Like this is mm -hmm. your bread and butter. This is what you do all day, every day. Can you kind of tell us what got you started uh, down this road and, you know, where you're headed? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, so, you know, my background is – let's see. So I was always a space nerd as a kid. Um, bought my first telescope when I was 14 years old. I um, – it's funny, actually, when I was in high school, I was a, uh, I took the journalism program and I wrote a column about what you could see in the night sky, which, which, which constellations were up. It was super nerdy. Um, and, but, you know, my parents were into space and I lived in a fairly dark sky. So I was able to go out and see meteor showers and auroras and, and things like that. My, my father had watched the original Apollo landings and was excited about the space shuttle. And, and so I was quite steeped in, in space, but then I, sort of did a turn into, I wanted to get into video games. Um, and so I ended up um, getting my sort of working in software companies and I ended up working on corporate websites, which every person who wants to work in video games ends up doing. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we were doing a lot of like websites for banks and things like that, but I had all these ideas that nobody would listen to me about. And so I, I wanted to just, pick one of my hobbies at random, start a website where I could test out my ideas and see what, and see what would happen. And, and I learned a lot of, you know, that, that I had good ideas that, that managing a website is about updating the website, not about building the website mm. and other such things. And I learned a lot that I was able to bring back to my clients, but I also learned that I never wanted to do anything else for the rest of my life, but run universe today, be a science journalist and run universe today. And so that's where so then it was a matter of being able to extricate myself from my existing job and move into um, doing this full time. And I was, right. I was fortunate. I was able, had some money saved up. I was able to live very cheaply and, and over the years was able to build up enough to be able to have a salary and eventually hire other people and, and run a website. 
That's fantastic. So let's talk about for folks who've never been to Universe Today and they want to check it out. Like, what are the things that you focus on um, specifically uh, in in that, as well as your YouTube channel? Yeah. So I think the way Universe Today works is a little different from a lot of other sites. I mean, I have a pretty like my interest is in very sort of what are the kinds of discoveries that are being made today in the near future? What are the really interesting projects that people are working on, the new ideas for telescopes, interesting solutions to some of the, the problems in, in space and astronomy? And, and so I really try to encourage the writing team to, to focus on those kinds of stories. I'm a lot less interested in very speculative, what will the universe look like five billion years from now? Um, or what will humanity look like five billion years from now? But I'm, but I'm very interested in really just like the, the bleeding edge, cutting edge of, of, of what we learned yesterday, what we think we're going to discover tomorrow. And so that is the, that sort of from my editorial publishing uh, guidelines, but the writers are free to write kind of whatever they want as well. So it's sort of a blend of, of what interests them as well as what interests me. Right. And so tell us about like, what are the things that, you know, you want to know that you can't quite know yet based on the technology that's available? Like what from maybe we could we could talk about um, telescopes, we could talk about uh, spacecraft. But like, what are what are the interesting things that are driving you that if we had that right technology, you'd be you'd be down for it? Well, I think the, the biggest question that that I think we want to know. I think one of the biggest scientific questions we could possibly ask is, are we alone in the universe? Um, it, did life only form here on Earth, or did it form in other places in the solar system, or did it form across other star systems across the universe? Are there aliens out there right now watching Earth with their telescopes? Are they right. visiting us with their aerial spacecraft? And, and so I want to know... Um, you know, finding out the answer to this question is very tricky. You have to send a spacecraft to another planet. You have to build a telescope capable of resolving the atmosphere of a planet orbiting a star that could be many light years away. So it's a very tricky question to to give an answer. And, and, and it's actually going to be almost impossible to get a definitive answer for a very long time. So, um, the, but the process is the part that I find exciting, the journey of what is the new idea? Someone has proposed a new idea like, oh, we could look for isoprene in the atmosphere of, a, of an exoplanet. That's a good idea. That could only be produced by life. Maybe we can look for that chemical. Uh, so there's just like all of these cool ideas, one after the other, and either people make a discovery, like the discovery of phosphine on Venus, which has ended up being uh, fairly uh, inconclusive, um, to, to other discoveries of, of interesting formations on Mars and, and things like that. The fact that we're seeing uh, food for bacteria coming out of vents, water vents on Enceladus, things like that. So it's just that bit by bit accumulation of, of information. The, the analogy that I always like to give is that it's sort of like a, a a sports ball game, um, you know. <laughs> I, you know, you choose the sports ball game of your, of, of your favorite, and you don't know how it's going to end. But you're there for the story. You're there to see the players kick the ball uh, in the direction of the ball place, um, and 
And it's sort of the same thing with what we're doing. Like we're, you know, once you get knowledgeable enough about, about the story as it's currently unfolding, you're learning this team has made this discovery. That team has made that discovery. This team is, has figured out a way to improve the calibration of their, of their light squeezing technology to detect gravitational waves by 50%, which is going to allow a larger sphere of detection and so on and so forth. And, and that's what I really enjoy is just the, it really feels like a story and we don't know how it's going to end. We don't know what the answer to what is dark matter is. And right now we're in the middle of the story. And we will find out that right. it doesn't exist, that it's a particle, that it's gravity working ways we didn't understand. But it's the journey that is most entertaining to me. Right. So it's not necessarily about, you know, the truth is out there. I've got to find it. It's for you. It's about the process and the journey mm -hmm. and the oh, discoveries along the way. Yeah. And I think that's powerful. I think that's important because I think a lot of times we can stake our hopes, our, our dreams, our ideas on, an, on and build an entire identity around something uh, and miss the entire journey. Right. I think it's mm -hmm. I think um, you have a, you, you bring a great perspective to the table on that. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, Perseverance and the Mars rover and then we're sure. going to get back to we can we can have talk more about uh um, the search for extraterrestrial life, as well as our fascination with uh, the solar system and the universe. Um, but I am curious. Like I'm watching a lot of uh, a lot of these images come back from the rovers, and and I'm 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 not fully I, like I don't fully understand like the atmosphere of Mars and things like that. And I'm just curious, like when when we're looking at pictures of Mars, what are the things we should be thinking about and looking at um, to get the most out of it? Well, and so this is the this is the story. And, and, and this story of like what's going on, what happened to Mars has been unfolding for, in terms of scientific process for decades now, from when the first Mariner spacecraft captured the first images of the surface of, of Mars, and we saw craters and, and things like that, to the, the 1970s when orbiters were sent to Mars, the Viking landers were sent to try to perform experiments to see if there was life on Mars, right. um, all the way through the the Pathfinder, the Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity, Perseverance, it's really the story of the search for 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 life on Mars, but also to just understand the history of Mars. Why did Mars cool down? Why doesn't it have a thick atmosphere? What happened to all of its water? What happened to its atmosphere? Um, is it still tectonically active in any way? And so all of these questions require spacecraft capable of, of answering them. Right. And, you know, now when you're sort of looking as you understand that story, you know, if you, you know, when last we saw our heroes, spirit and opportunity were sent to Mars to find out if water was ever present on the surface of Mars. And they found overwhelming evidence that, that water was on Mars in the past. Curiosity was sent to, to then say, okay, if we know that water was on Mars in the past, was water acting in a liquid state for long periods of time on the surface of Mars, the kind of conditions that could have life? And Curiosity, again, has sent back case after case of, of example that, yes, indeed, there was liquid water on the surface of Mars for long periods of time, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Right. Perseverance's job is to then take that story to the next level and say, okay, were there the conditions for life? Not just the water, but were there the kinds of chemicals available that life could use? 
are there any byproducts with life ever active are there byproducts of life that could be found various kinds of minerals and rocks and things like that that we have here on earth that can only be produced by life and even is there life today although that would be pretty difficult to to find so it's this story and we still don't know the answer and then the next chapter of the story is going to be all of these samples that that Perseverance and, and eventually the European rover are going to be collecting, they're going to be gathered up, put onto a spacecraft, and they're going to be sent back home to Earth where scientists can really examine them carefully in a laboratory. And then if that brings some really interesting discoveries, then we're going to see future missions that are going to try to answer those questions. And eventually, hopefully, we'll have a human research station on Mars, like we have in Antarctica, where humans go to and from Earth to Mars, scientists, and they spend their days examining rocks, searching for samples, trying to piece together the history of Mars. It, Mars really wants to kill human beings, right? It does not. It's not interested in in us surviving on Mars. So we're going to have to be incredibly clever when yeah. it comes to our ability to put boots on the ground and really uh, keep ourselves and, and those who are uh, that adventurous who want to live on Mars and those those sorts of people safe. Well, what are we going to have to do to do that? Like, how do we keep those folks safe on Mars? Yeah, Mars is absolutely trying to kill you. Um, <laughs> I mean, the whole universe is trying to kill you. I mean, the right. only place in the entire universe that isn't trying to kill you is Earth. And not and <laughs> most of the Earth is trying to kill you. So, so really, it is the universe is trying to kill you. Um, but yeah, when you think about Mars, you've got 1% the atmospheric pressure of what we have here on Earth. 1% of the 1%. atmospheric pressure. That's lethal, okay. right? That's not, okay. you cannot breathe. You go outside, you immediately exhale all the air out of your lungs, and then you pass out, and then you die. Um, so you need a spacesuit. <laughs> uh, it's cold, bitterly cold. Uh, Temperature can rise on a on in the middle of summer to just above freezing, but temperatures can go down below 100 degrees at, at night Celsius. Right, very cold. Um, there is constant radiation blasting from space. It has no radiation protection whatsoever, or very very minor amounts of radiation protection. Here on Earth, we're protected by the Earth's magnetosphere as well as the thick atmosphere, and that protects you. No such luck on Mars. You're gonna have to live underground. Um, so. The lower gravity, we don't know what one-third gravity does to the human body over long periods of time. Could be a fine, might be lethal. We don't know. Right. So again, these are these are questions that we still don't have the, the answers to. So when people think, oh, it'd be cool to go to Mars, like I'd really like to go to Mars, they're imagining like the Arizona desert. Right. Thinking, oh, it'd be great to just go and like stand in the Arizona desert, like I'm on Mars, but but it's so much worse. It, right. And you can, understand, you can understand why, right? I mean, you, we're getting these beautiful mm. images back from oh, yeah. Mars and we're going, oh my God, it looks like yeah. the Arizona desert. Yeah, it does. It looks like the Arizona desert, but it is death. And <laughs> that, that Antarctica is so much more habitable. Like you could go to Antarctica with a nice coat on and, and live and survive for right. a while, right? Until you got thirsty or needed food. Uh, but you can't do that on Mars. You you will instantly, all Perish. the air will go out, rush out right. of your lungs and you'll fall to the ground and you'll, and you'll die within minutes. Right. So um, it's really important to just understand that it is an environment where every moment 
thing. You, you, were, you were being kept alive 100% by the technology that you've brought along with right. you, the technology to keep you, to keep you warm, to keep you breathing, to keep you protected from the radiation. And at any point, if that technology fails, you're dead. There's no, there's no way you can, you can um, just sort of like wait out until you get the fix in. And so a lot of our time over the next few decades is just learning to, to recreate the conditions that Earth provides to us naturally. Right. On Mars. Right. Or in space. <laughs> it should be interesting. Um, it always re reminds me of that uh, Elon Musk meme. And he's, it's like, you know, we're on our way. We're like, we're so excited to get to this lifeless red planet when, you know, and escape this incredibly lush, viable green earth right yeah. under our feet. Um, question for you. You said uh, the atmospheric pressure on Mars is 1%. Uh, so I actually have two questions. Um, when When we're looking at the rover images we're seeing you see sand and it looks like it's in waves right so obviously there's wind moving there um but also um you know we sent up ingenuity which is our which is our helicopter uh that we're gonna test on mars Soon. Yeah, oh right right, right. April, it's on April the 11th April 11th okay um so two questions one how does how does wind work in one percent atmospheric pressure right. And then two, is, is Ingenuity going to be successful? Will this thing fly on Mars? Yeah, well, I'll tackle the second question first. The answer that people always ask me is I say once, which, you know, how often, you know, you get a new drone, you take it out of the packaging, <laughs> you set it up, you fly into the air, and then it crashes. And right. then you sort of, you know, gather up all the pieces, put them in the garbage, and wait until next bet? Christmas. Is That's that my bet? Yeah, no, I, I think your it'll, hope. It'll I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it's your hope. I'm just saying it's your hope. It's my bet. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It, it's it's no. I think NASA is gonna gonna be able to to fly a couple of times higher and higher flights, and um, you know, one of those times it's gonna fail. It's gonna crash. I think right. it's gonna you know maybe four or five times. Maybe we'll see. Um, but then that's the joke I always make: is that it's just gonna fly once. Yeah. Um, uh, how does wind work? Well, I mean, wind speeds on Mars can be dramatically higher than we have here on Earth. You can really? have hurricane force winds on Mars. Yeah. Mm. We see how the wind can kick up those enormous dust storms across the entire planet. The crazy part, I don't know if you watched The Martian, but you would experience dramatically less air pressure. And so you could be standing out in a hurricane with sand everywhere flying past you at hundreds of kilometers an hour, and you wouldn't feel a breeze at all. You couldn't fly a kite in it because the amount of air pushing on your kite is so low. So with the with the ingenuity, okay, that just that that hurt that hurt my brain right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the way the ingenuity helicopter is going to work is it has a massive. It's actually a very big helicopter. It looks like it's teeny tiny, but it's actually quite large. Right. Um, the rotor is going to spin very fast. The gravity on on Mars is is lower than it is on Earth, and so with all of those factors together, they've been able to figure out how to have the right wingspan, the right speed, the the lightest possible weight for this thing to be able to actually take off for very right. short periods of time. Oh, that should be really interesting. Uh, for those of you just joining us, we're here with Fraser Kane. He is the author of Universe Today. He's got an amazing uh, YouTube channel as well. Um, and he is a, a passionate, passionate uh, space advocate and investigative journalist. If you guys have any questions um, that you want for Fraser to answer, feel free to throw those in the chat. 
uh, and we'll get those answered for you. Uh, currently, we're talking about Mars and uh, the search for extraterrestrial life. Um, Fraser, let me let me ask you this: um, What do you think? You know, you've got you've got Musk uh, fighting for space. You've got um, uh, you've got private uh, other private organizations that are uh, pushing um, you know the the economic development of space you've also got NASA right so we've mm-hmm. got we've got private and public um, companies these private companies seem to be really taking uh, taking the stage here what is going to be role uh, NASA's role moving forward in relationship to these these private companies that are starting to take over the space race well in in the past, the development of a new rocket system was so complicated and so expensive, it took the entire resources of a nation state like the United States to be able to to be able to launch rock, to be able to send humans to the moon, et cetera. But over time, as the development costs have come down, as the computing power has gone up, as just people have learned more and more about it, you're being able to see these rocket companies get developed for for vastly cheaper prices. And right. so what's happening is it's turning from something that only the government can do to something that private companies can do. NASA doesn't build all of its cars and trucks that it uses. It, it buys them from other companies. And NASA has been has been deeply involved with companies like SpaceX and, and Blue Origin really from their inception. Um, it was NASA that funded SpaceX right at the beginning, helped secure a couple of the early flights, really kept the company out of bankruptcy. Um, mm. And so there's been this partnership, this very close partnership between NASA and SpaceX. NASA is SpaceX's biggest customer. And and so on the other hand, NASA is also building their own rocket system, the Space Launch System. And so they've sort of got the, the worst of both worlds, best of both worlds um, happening at the same time. On the one hand, you've got them purchasing flights on board SpaceX, as well as potentially Boeing and, and other providers to send humans to space um, at just cost per seat. It's like $60 million per astronaut who is delivered to the space station of uh, uh, some amount per ton for just raw material sent to the space station. And then on the other hand, they are, they are developing what is currently going to be the most powerful rocket system ever made, the space launch system, although Starship will give it a a run for its money. Um, But it is very over budget, very late. Um, (laughs) Each launch is incredibly expensive, uh, completely destroyed at the end of each, each launch. And as the reusable launch market starts to get figured out, it's becoming more and more obvious that reusability is the future. Yeah. And, and so you know, a lot of people think that that the space launch system's days are probably numbered. It's just at a certain point, someone is someone is going to say, "Why are we building this again?" As as starships are flying to and fro, and, right. and so I think that it's just a matter of time. You know, we we always try to guess how many space launch system flights will actually happen, and right. most of the people who who know a lot are guessing about four. Well, well, a starship, fully stacked starship, could do four in a day. Right, right. Uh, Rodrigo says, if Fraser were a space traveler, which planet would he visit? Well, and I let, let's yeah. do a thought experiment. So we're talking, we're talking. We, we can travel. We've got warp. We can travel the. We can travel the solar system. Like we're good to go. Like what? Where? Where are you headed, yeah. and why, Fraser? Well, oh, if we got warp. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is that we don't know what's interesting out there. I mean, I mean, right. I would love to see. If you can show me the catalog, 
of all the planets. <laughs> and then I'll go with that one. That one sounds great. Right. Um, okay. Forget warp. Let's go. But, let's go with solar but, system. But, let's if, go with but if the solar system, yeah, there are some places. Like I would love to stand at the edge of Valles Marineris on Mars, which is the largest, deepest valley in the solar system, and and look out across to the other oh, side. Yeah. I would love to go to the surface of Titan, where. Um, it has a thicker atmosphere than the Earth does. And we talked about Mars with 1%. Titan's atmosphere is 150% the density of Earth. You could strap on a pair of wings and, and flap around inside the Titan atmosphere under your own human power because the gravity is so low. Talk about a place where a flying machine is going to really work. That's Titan. Right. Um, so there are, there are, I mean, there are so many places that I would love to be able to see with my own eyes. But you know, each of these places are very far away and it's very dangerous and they're all trying to kill me. So, right. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I have to just settle with photographs. Right. For now, for now. Yeah. Uh, Ron wants to know who's going to build the infrastructure on Mars since SpaceX is not going to do it. Ooh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think right now there's sort of two parts to really think about. On the one hand, you got the idea of just the exploration of of Mars in the same way that we have the exploration of Antarctica, that there is a research station that's built on Antarctica. Some of the buildings are American, some are Russian, some are from Europe. And as people have new ideas and want to build out their infrastructure, they, they deliver new facilities and, and build and construct new parts to, to the Antarctic research stations. Mm. And so I think we'll see the same thing on Mars. We will see a, a Chinese research station, uh, perhaps a Russian station, perhaps an American station, or maybe one station that's that's staffed by by all the nations. That would be great. And then they will be responsible for maintaining the infrastructure. They'll send more supplies. They'll learn to live off the land, but also continue to send more stuff from Earth. But it's, you know, to, to support a staff of six people living on Mars is one thing. To support a city of a million inhabitants, that's a whole <laughs> other thing. And, and so I think Musk and other space, I guess, habitation proponents, uh, they really believe that the, the it's all going to be about living off the land. Like, unless you can't, you know, you have to be able to build the things that you need from the resources that you have at your disposal. You're going to turn Martian regolith into buildings. You're going to turn Martian, that thin Martian atmosphere into breathable air and food for plants and, and things like that. And that's, that's right. what's going to be required. And in the middle term, it's going to be whoever wants to spend the money. I mean, right now, Elon Musk's and SpaceX's stance is, if you want to go to Mars, we will provide you the transportation to get there. And so to ask who's going to build your house is kind of like asking your Uber driver, you know, <laughs> when I, when I get to my destination, who's going to buy my movie ticket? And your Uber driver's like, that is not my problem. Right. So, um, and I think that's the stance right now is that these are details that, that Elon Musk is, and SpaceX are not have not concerned themselves with so right. far. Now there are a thousand details that need to be figured out. How you can right. read, how you can eat, how you can drink, how you can protect yourself from radiation. Um, but SpaceX is concerned with how are we going to get people there, not what are they going to do when they get there, how are they going to live, all that kind of stuff. They're just right. assuming that's all going to get figured out. 
right. I am and I'm skeptical sure, that that will all get figured out. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's pretty confident that it will get figured out since uh, this is this is what he's driving. But I, I can see the the complexity is just insane. Um, what what are your thoughts on? Uh, oh, here we go. We got a, we got a question. Does Fraser think we will be required to build underground on Mars? And I also a, a, a second part of that question that I, that I'd like to ask um, is about terraforming and whether or not because you mentioned living off the land of Mars, we're going to be, be able we're going to need to use our technology to figure out ways in order to use uh, the surface of Mars to our advantage. Um, and then ultimately that can lead down the road to terraforming. So I'm curious on what you think about the ex- ethics of terra- terraforming. Um, but the first question is, what are we going to need to build right. underground? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, you know, as I said, you've got this constant radiation that's streaming from space, both from the sun as well as uh, cosmic rays that are really energetic particles coming from the cores of other galaxies, and they will tear your DNA apart at a molecular level. So you really don't want to absorb very much of that. And the solution is living underground. So if you want to, like, live the Mars experience, dig a hole in the ground and just hang out inside and see what you think. You're, you're doing it. You're on Mars now. Um, <laughs> as it relates to terraforming, I mean, I think if there's life on Mars today, then I think there are ethical issues that we have to consider about whether or not we should be even messing with the life at all. Right. Um, what 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 rights does life on Mars? In, do we, is is it our responsibility to protect the the biodiversity that already exists on Mars. And I, I think there's an argument to me that, that we should. I also think there's an argument to me that we won't. <laughs> I was going to make that argument if you didn't. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, it's like we're humans. We do what we do. And so, you know, the first thing we do is just ruin it. So I think that's that's naturally going to be what we, what our response will be to this new, really fascinating biome that we discover is like, how can we wreck this? But, but I think that, that if there is no life, then Mars is a rock and all of the asteroids are rocks. And so you don't really have any ethical quandaries about whether or not you should, you should turn the rock into a different kind of rock. Um, although there are, I mean, there are aesthetic issues about how beautiful Mars is and, right. you know, it'd be like turning the Arizona desert into a, if there was, you know, if you have to worry yourself with the, ethical issues of, of the plants and animals that live there in the delicate environment. If you're just like, I'd like to make mountains that were shaped like pyramids and just like, <laughs> let's just do it. Um, then you can do that. And so I think with, with terraforming, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, it's ridiculous just, just at the base level to think that you can, you can in any reasonable amount of time transform the environment of a planet um, although obviously, you know, what we're doing here on earth shows that we're, you know, if we really put our backs into it, we can, we can, <laughs> we can, we can really make a change to how planet works. Right. But, but I mean, you're looking at thousands, potentially tens of thousands of years to make a place that is m- slightly less lethal, but still very, still trying to kill you. You've, you know, you've, you've only mildly changed its ability to kill you. Right. Um, and so I think, Trying to search for life on Mars really gives us that first, you know, if we do find life, then I think we have some serious ethical issues that we're going to have to solve. Because, I mean, even just like if we do find life on Mars, did that life, is that life related to us here on Earth? Did we, did we form 
from life on Mars? Did Mars life form from us? Did Mars life form completely independently? And if it did, what does that tell us about the kind of life that we might find in other places around the, the universe? So right. it's a very fascinating scientific question. It would really suck if everywhere we go, we're just like, ah, oh, more cyanobacteria from Earth because it's just colonizing every nook and cranny of, of planet Mars. And we've destroyed the whatever is the native um, species that are there. So I think right. that so yeah, I'm. I'm. I think that that we need to be very careful about continuing our exploration of Mars and do it in a very, you know, land in a place that is almost certainly dead. Look around, expand our sphere very carefully, trying to really try to protect Mars as best we can. You you came out with an article recently on uh, Universe Today about the Earth and how we're losing atmosphere, and over billions of years, we'll we'll see our our, our atmosphere uh, dissipate. Um, you know, do you think there's a relationship to the history of Mars and and uh, the atmospheric dissipation we're seeing on Earth? Is it possible that Mars was uh, extremely habitable and and a life giving planet like Earth? What are your thoughts? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it definitely looks like Mars had liquid water on the surface of the planet for long periods of time. And so if you have liquid water, then the temperatures were better and the thickness of the atmosphere was better. But what what killed Mars was its lack of mass. And so because Mars has way less mass than the Earth, it cooled down very quickly. It If it ever had an internal dynamo that was protecting, you know, creating a magnetosphere that was blocking the solar radiation, it died, disappeared. And then the sun's solar wind was able to either blast away the atmosphere or be able to sort of like the planet seized up and it, it reabsorbed all of the water and, and atmosphere mm. into its insides. So it's, so the reason Mars died is because it was too small and too low mass. The reason earth is going to die is because the sun is heating up. And right. Just the, just the process that's going on inside the sun is it's converting hydrogen into helium. Every year that goes by, the sun heats up a tiny little bit. And eventually that, that, that causes Earth's temperature to go up a tiny little bit. This does not explain global warming. This is not, <laughs> right? This is, this is a very long, very slow process. It's going to take a billion years to go through. But at the end of a billion years the earth is going to be so hot that its oceans are going to boil. The, the, all of the water will probably be lost to space. The oxygen will be destroyed or mixed into other chemicals and earth will be as dead and dry as, as Mars. And so people think like, Oh, we've got 5 billion years left in the solar system before the sun turns into a red giant and engulfs all the inner planets. But the reality is that just through heating alone, our planet really only has about 500 million to a billion years left. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, uh, what do you think about, you mentioned something about uh, Mar the uh, dissipation of atmosphere on Mars and, and the potential reabsorption of water. Do you think, Do you think like, can you explain that to me, like what you, what you mean by that? Well, so f for the longest time, people have always assumed that Mars is incredibly dry because the planet lost its magnetosphere. It wasn't able to stop the, the, the sun's radiation and the solar wind from blasting the water out into deep space. 
And, and so it was thought that the water was, was long gone and sort of there's like been some new studies that have looked at some of the chemicals, uh, some of the rocks on Mars. And it's possible that in fact, these chemicals were formed because, because the water was actually absorbed into the planet itself. And so it might actually be that what that, that Mars held on to all of its water. It's just that it's actually inside the, the planet and very difficult to extract. Right. Not like and in so, lakes underneath, but actually like mixed in with its with its mantle and, and such. Okay, okay. That that was the question I was gonna ask. Are we talking about like fracking? You know, we're gonna find water by fracking on, on Mars versus giant oceans of, of water underneath the surface. Yeah, no, no, no. Like like chemicals that are water rich that are k- kilometers, if not tens of kilometers under the surface. So not yeah. easy water to get at. Yeah, I just read an article the other day, which is really interesting about um, utilizing uh, tardigrades um, and and looking at their ability. So, for those of you who don't know what tardigrades are, they're just these like impossible to kill creatures. Um, and then, so we were talking to, to a genomics expert recently as well, and she was talking about how you know they're looking at you know how do we how do we utilize uh, DNA from tardigrades and like figure out how to and she was like she was like you'll literally be creating a new race of people like you're you're gonna create mars people and i was like damn like that's crazy have you ever thought about that well i mean the reality is that we have a lot of life forms here on earth that are already ready to go to mars um right there are several kinds of bacteria lichens um slime molds there's various life forms which not only could survive on the surface of mars but actually continue to replicate so um, I, I think currently tardigrades, water bears would, would sort of go into hibernation if you drop them on the surface of Mars. So they would right. be able to handle it, but, but cyanobacteria is ready to go. No problem. Wow. And that's interesting because we, you know, you and I, I think we talked about this on our last, uh, conversation about how, you know, when we're sending, when we're sending things to Mars, like the level of, uh, the level of you know, destroying bacteria on our ships to eliminate any possible footprint of introducing life to Mars is, is so incredibly important, but uh, you know, it's not, it's, there's no way to make, you know, for it not to be possible. Right. Yeah. Well that's, and again, that's what I was sort of talking about as the problem earlier, which is that wouldn't it be terrible if you go to Mars, you dig in the soil and all you find is cyanobacteria that came from earth that, that is, you know, you know, came from your spacecraft that that the record of life on mars is wiped out by the by by the earth life which is perhaps better suited to handle that environment right right um what are you most excited about right now when it comes to technology i i, I really enjoyed you did a um uh, a video a while back about a um what's it called it's called like a space elevator um is that is that something that might be a reality is a space elevator like a possibility That's- that sounds like a very long, that was, that was in my wide eyed, you know, youthful days. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing is like, people have always been trying to figure, people have known that, that access to space um, is a, is a cost thing that currently if you, you have to spend a thousand, 3000 to $10,000 per kilogram to send mass into orbit, it really limits the, the kinds of, of payloads that you can send into space. Right. But if the costs come down, then really interesting ideas start to start to 
be possible. And so for the longest time, people thought that, that a space elevator was going to be the, the cheapest way that you, you essentially build a, a carbon nanotube cable that goes from the surface of the Earth out past geosynchronous orbit. And you then can have elevators go up and down this cable and it reduces the costs. I'm, I'm guessing you've decided against this now. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's not my fault. It's, um, you know, I mean, one, the, the technology was always like right at the very limits of what is possible on on the Earth. Beyond, right. Like we don't have, we don't have a, a material with tensile strength to be able to support the weight of the, of the cable. On the moon, the technology is a lot more feasible and makes a lot more sense because mm. we actually do have the kinds, you know, the lower gravity, the shorter distance. We actually have lots of, fabrics today that would work just fine spectra there's these other fabrics kevlar things like that um but the but the funny thing is is that the rise of the reusable launch market has totally changed the dynamics that if you do the math at what a space elevator could lift and at what cost a fully reusable giant rocket like starship could actually bring those launch costs even lower and it doesn't have right. any of the downsides of 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 using a space elevator you can launch from anywhere on earth you can you can reuse the same rocket many many times you can transfer way more payload if you need more payload you build more rockets so although the idea of these mega projects of building these giant space elevators and stuff are 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 great for imagining ways to bring down launch costs. The reality is a fully reusable two-stage rocket will probably be the cheapest way to launch anything and everything into space. Like we're seeing probably two orders of magnitude cheaper prices with something like Starship. Right. It reminds me of uh, I live here in Florida and like forever it's been on the table to create a monorail from Miami to Orlando to Tampa. And it's just like this endless pipe dream. Sounds, yeah. sounds like uh, the space elevator might be uh, in that bracket. Yeah. I mean, that, that problem been figured out. They call it a train. <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, Rodrigo says, I learned days ago that there's a recent laser technology able to send payloads to the mesosphere in not the so far future. Amazing. That's mm. interesting. I, I haven't I'm, heard of that. Yeah, I'm curious, Rodrigo, if you have any more information on that too, to share that with us. Super interesting. Um what what what's next on what's what's on your horizon? What what tech are you are you loving um right now when it comes to uh rocketry and um space and development of uh well, I think, I mean, we are at this really interesting inflection point between the way rockets used to fly and the way rockets are going to fly in the future um, with potentially Starship. And as we watch, you know, we talk about a, a, a story that we're in the middle of right now. We're watching Starship after Starship fall to the Texas desert and explode. Um, so the question of four of them now have, have, have failed to stick the landing. Right. And so... And we haven't even got to the point that they're going to try to start bringing them back through the Earth's atmosphere with all the re-entry heating and, and so on. So the, so the question really is, can SpaceX make a fully reusable two-stage rocket? If they can, then pretty much overnight, every other launch system on planet Earth is rendered irrelevant. There is no need that, that the most powerful rocket system on Earth will also be the cheapest by, by an order of magnitude. And so if you want to launch a tiny little CubeSat into space, still the cheapest launch is going to be on a Starship. And so when you look at all those other providers out there, they all 
won't they will not be able to compete at all. But on the flip side, it might be that that this is impossible and that that SpaceX is going to take 50 years of crashing, you know, filling up the Boca Chica with twisted metal before finally giving up. I don't think so. I think they've gotten pretty close with some of their their landings that I think they're going to sort out some of the engineering challenges. But but it is interesting to be at this point where we don't know what the story, what the future of the story is. And it's quite exciting to see each iteration happen and think about the, you know, think about the consequences and think about what that means for the future. I mean, we're already starting to see, even with the Falcon 9, SpaceX is launching thousands of Starlinks into space, providing a worldwide internet capability. I've got a Starlink. It works like a charm. It's great. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. That's good yeah. to know. And it's amazing. It's you know, 150 megabit speed down, uh, 50 megabits up. It's got like an 18 second ping time. It's very fast. The downside is that it's going to be um, degrading the ability for astronomers to be able to do astronomy. So on the one hand, you get the ability for remote communities that have been um, that, that that have never been considered important enough to be connected by the internet to finally get internet access for reasonably cheap. I mean, we've got all these far-flung communities here in Canada who are getting Starlinks, and now suddenly for the first time they can join the country, they can join the world, they can they can get education, they can get healthcare for their children, they can do all this great stuff. Um, on the other hand, um, we already it already looks like just having this many satellites in space, as much space debris is just steadily degrading our ability to do astronomy from planet Earth. And so I think that we're going to face a lot more of these, these tricky dilemmas that, that on the one hand, you get this benefit. On the other hand, you get this downside. And that's, of course, that's technology. That's how humans work. And, and the hope is that we are able to, to work our way through these these dilemmas, to take action to minimize and mitigate the the downsides, while taking advantage of the of the opportunities that they bring us. Right. Without that's a, everyone yelling at each other about it. Right. Well, well, that's going to happen regardless. No, I know, uh, I know, I know. It's funny. <laughs> like it's funny because I, you know, people people have these very um, just very you know very angry hot takes about what. Starlink, for example, means. Oh, you've been on Twitter then. I yeah, guess. yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and and so you like on the one hand you say so you know do you think it's important for a person in a in a in a First Nations community in in Canada to be able to get access to the internet for their children to be able to participate in online learning for them to be able to to live in a place where they love to live in a place where they uh, they feel connected point. to their land, but also be able to participate in a in a global community, be able to, to access the internet, to be able to rage tweet like anybody. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they should. And, and up until this point, they've never been considered a, a, a serious enough market for any of our big cell phone providers, for any of our internet providers to be able to deliver internet to them. So, mm. so yes, that seems important to me. Um, and in fact, what are your other choices? Do you build, like right now there's like 5 million cell phone towers around the earth. They kill birds at an astonishing amount. They put out all kinds of electromagnetic radiation. You have to run um, cables through sensitive marine environments. You have to dig 
uh, thousands of kilometers of, of cable lines to bury fiber optic cables around the planet. Like, like delivering internet the way we currently do does a tremendous amount of harm to the environment already. Um, and so, so on the flip side, um, these satellites are now brightening the skies in places that never experienced any light pollution. You know, if you were gonna build a telescope in Chile, you knew that you were far enough away from every city that you're gonna have just the most pristine viewing environment possible. And now you run your telescope, you look at your pictures and it's just got, it's got lines through it right. because of all of these satellites and it's just gonna get worse and worse. There was a study that came out that said that, that light pollution is, is gonna be uh, probably 10% worse already around the planet, even in the places that had no light pollution because of all the space junk and, and satellites that are up there. Right. And so the, the bottom line is that this is a very complicated topic and, and, I, and it's not going anywhere and we need to address it very seriously. We need to mitigate the light pollution effects and just in general. I mean, I, people always say, oh, I'm so mad about there being satellites in the sky. I'm like, do you, you know, are there lights in your city? I mean, if you are mad about light pollution, that battle is lost. You know, is lost. But you can one third of humanity has no way to see the Milky Way now because of light pollution in cities. So right. the bottom line is that it's complicated and and it's gonna be meaningful and we need to be able to work out solutions to this in a way that is calm and effective and does the most good with the least harm. I think that's a, an incredibly important viewpoint, especially coming from an astronomy journalist like yourself to be as open-minded to the humanitarian aspects as you are, because I can imagine there are a lot of astronomers who are incredibly frustrated uh, with their work being interfered with uh, due to the amount of satellites that are being sent into space. Um, Ron says, A-F-A-I-K, I don't know what that acronym is. Musk said that the Starlink st satellites are only so visible because they were tumbling right after launch. So hopefully right. it will not be an issue. W can you explain that? Yeah, when, when the Starlinks first launch, they're quite bright. And you can watch this train of Starlinks passing along in the sky. And it's very obvious. And then over time, as they move to their final orbit, they separate themselves, they get higher, they get less bright. And that's, and, and absolutely, for, for your average human being, you walk outside and you look up and you will not be able to see a single starlight, even in very dark skies. You will not have any problem whatsoever. But in the eyes of a telescope, they're still very bright. They are, they are bright enough to rival the brightness of many of the stars or galaxies that astronomers are looking at. And you get this, this just this smeary line right through the galaxy that you're hoping to observe. And so that data is lost. And it's just friction that just every satellite that goes up makes the ability for an astronomer to do their science just a little bit harder. Right, right. Uh, Rodrigo says the Lagrange point is a great spot to put telescopes through. Can you explain that? Well, I mean, there's, I mean, just in general, the idea of putting up space telescopes is a great idea, but that doesn't solve the problem of, right. of light pollution, that, that there are plenty of really good reasons to put to, to observe space from the surface of planet Earth. And in fact, the next generation of telescopes, I mean, there's, there's one being built in Chile right now, the extremely large telescope, it's a 39 meter telescope. You can't put a 39 meter telescope in space very easily. Right. And you can upgrade the equipment and you can use it while you're 
while you're nearby the telescope. Like there's all kinds of advantages to observing space from the surface of planet Earth. And with modern technology, they pretty much dealt with all of the atmospheric distortion and temperature distortions and, and things like that. Uh, you know, engineers have been able to make telescopes on Earth work incredibly well. Right. So yeah, absolutely. There's lots of great places, but you know, we look at something like the extremely large telescope, which is a 39 meter telescope when, when built will be the most powerful telescope in the history of, of humanity. And it's costing a billion dollars. You look at um, something like the James Webb Space Telescope, it's nearing $10 billion. And it's not going to be necessarily as powerful as the extremely large telescope. So, so there are advantages to going to space, especially in some wavelengths like X-rays and, and far infrared. But just in general, uh, there's plenty of advantages to keeping your telescopes on Earth as well. So I, I, you know, you can't sort of wave a magic wand and put all your telescopes in space. Right. What are what are the uh, game changers you're looking forward when it comes to James Webb? What do you what are you looking forward to exploring uh, with that telescope? Well, I want to see it launch, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the game changer. The game changer is, is James Webb takes flight um, and works successfully. I mean, there's so much riding on this observatory. Uh, it's so late. It's so far over budget. It's the hopes and dreams of, of a generation of astronomers have been put on hold waiting for this telescope to do its job. When it does launch, it's going to be just a phenomenal machine for astronomy. It's going to be able to look right out pretty much to the edge of the observable universe, see the first galaxies as they were forming, just answer all of these questions about how the, the large scale structures of the universe came together. Closer to home, it's going to be able to observe exoplanets, even image the atmospheres of exoplanets, search for evidence of life producing chemicals, you know, that are in the atmospheres of these of these planets. Right. It's gonna be able to peer through the gas and dust that obscures newly forming stars, give us clues about how our planet evolved. I mean, there's James Webb just like two days ago, I think, um, wrapped up all of the all of the initial sort of observing runs that they're gonna be doing on the with the telescope. And so um, I'm actually going to be doing an interview with someone from NASA, just sort of get an overview of like all the cool science that James Webb is going to be doing. What's been locked in so far, because they've already booked its first couple of years of, right. of observing. Right. That's, that's going to be, that's going to be absolutely fascinating. Um, so what's, uh, what's, what's on your horizon? So you, you are, tell us a little bit about like your YouTube channel, like what you talk about. I want folks to go check you out over there. Can you get, give folks like a little, and, and as well as uh, the universe today? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I do a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, the main thing that we do is of course, universe today. That's my, that's my day job. Every Friday I write an, an email newsletter, sort of providing a big summary of everything that's happening in, in space and astronomy. I, I'll, I should be working on it right after this interview. <laughs> um, um, and it's like a novel. It's like a magazine that, that goes out every week. So I think if you're in any way interested in that, you can, you can get that newsletter from, from the website. Um, and then, of course, on the YouTube channel, that's that's my chance to both connect with the audience and, and answer any follow-on questions. So I do a, a live question show, kind of like what we're doing, but taking questions from the audience about any subject that's interesting them so I can sort of go into the kinds of details that people want. And a lot of times right. that turns into ideas for stories and ideas for videos. And then the other thing that I like to do is just interview um, the scientists, the astronauts, the experts, the engineers that are working on various projects. 
And it gives me a chance to really deep dive and get all of the answers that I want. Um, every week we also do a show called the Weekly Space Hangout, which is like a big space news roundup where I talk with a whole bunch of space journalists about, about what stories are crossing their desks. And then, as you mentioned, uh, we do Astronomy Cast, which is this long-running show that I've been doing with Dr. Pamela Gay. We just recorded episode 600. So wow. we do this for like 15 <laughs> years now. Yeah. And you can literally hear me get an education in astronomy from a, from a PhD astronomer, which is, which is great. Over a six-year period. That's fantastic. Over a 15-year period, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. A 15-year yeah. yeah. period. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. That, that's yeah. fantastic. Um, yeah, I highly recommend uh, your newsletter as well. Your newsletter is absolutely amazing. So if you want to if you want to grab that, make sure you head over to a uh, universe today and, and get that. Um, Fraser, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the debrief today. Um, thank yeah, you for thank you for bearing with me uh, after <laughs> losing our first interview. I think that was uh, incredibly big of you to come back and I appreciate no it. No problem. Happy to do it. And if something interesting happens in the future, let me know. I'll come back on. Absolutely. That's fantastic. We appreciate your time. And uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, make sure you go follow Fraser Kane on YouTube as well as The Universe Today. Bye-bye. <laughs>